Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held in Ennistymon, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 39 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Totten, Barrister and editor of Decisis Tot. Well, Mark, uh, in the last episode, as you know, we discussed life after the law with former solicitor and NLP coach. I was going to call him life coach, but it is slightly different to NLP coach David McKechnie. Uh, what a great story he has to tell, swapping those banker boxes uh, for a surfboard on the beaches of Portugal. I'm overdoing the, the, the reference to the to the beaches of Portugal. <laughs> but, but important to, to, to note, though, that he did say that it could be very useful in developing your cross-examination technique. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and being serious for a moment, mm. uh, there was an awful lot of food for thought, I thought, in that interview. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure a lot of colleagues are kind of mm, scratching their head after listening to that, thinking, whoa, what about life outside the law? Maybe it's attractive. Who knows? Exist. Okay. Well, today we are back in legal territory, and our topic for discussion today is criminology, and in particular, restorative justice with Dr. Ian Marder from Maynooth University. Ian wrote an article in the journal which caught my eye, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this uh, interview, Mark, because. You know, restorative justice, it sounds like even the Department of Justice are thinking about this as a remedy for criminal wrongdoing. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think it's interesting because mediation has become such a big feature of civil litigation at this stage. And it does seem that restorative justice may have some of the benefits of mediation, although it's difficult to see exactly how to to slot it into the criminal process. Well, well, Ian Marder is an expert in this, and we're going to discuss those in, those issues in great detail with him. I'm really looking forward to that. But first, we're going to discuss three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. Uh, we're going to start with a case in which a receiver had been appointed over farmlands that were subject to a mortgage. This is the case of Cronin versus Pepper Finance Corporation, a decision of Mr. Justice Cregan in the High Court. The borrower claimed that the receiver had been wrongfully appointed and joined the the receiver's firm, KPMG, we've all heard of those, uh, as a defendant to the proceedings. He also claimed that the firm had acted negligently in an audit of a company in which the plaintiff had shares, I think. That's right, yeah. So I think this is one where the... the plaintiff sought, uh, was obviously suing the uh, the mortgagee of the of the lands, but also sought to keep, join KPMG. And to cut a long story short, this is one where he he sued the receiver's firm rather than the receiver himself. And basically, when a receiver is appointed, he's point, appointed as personal appointment. Although this particular receiver was a, was a partner in KPMG, KPMG are not liable for for somebody's work as a receiver. And then the second issue. Um, concerning the, um, the the audit of shares of the company. First of all, the, the plaintiff is suing as a shareholder and he didn't have a cause of action, but also he hadn't brought a, an expert report and you really do need that if you're going to sue somebody in their professional capacity. Talking about receivers, didn't we receive a very interesting communication to this show? Or was it liquidators? Liquidators. Somebody giving out that we said, oh, the liquidator is always the first to get paid. That's and right. they pointed out, no, that is the liquidator's legal advisor is the first to get that, paid. That was certainly the point that was made <laughs> by our by, by our, our long-term listener. Yeah, exactly. great. Mm. Well, and thank you to that long-term mm. listener. I don't think uh, he or she disclosed their name, but we're very grateful. That, that's good. Keep us on our toes. Um mm. 
And please get in touch. Anybody else when we say something that is slightly uh, in need of correction. correction. Uh, The next case is a public procurement issue in which a building company was disappointed by failing to secure a public contract. This is the case of Glenman Corporations Limited versus Galway City Council, a decision in the High Court of Mr Justice Toomey. It sought to issue judicial review proceedings, but issued them too late. The time limit was 30 days, but they issued the proceedings 90 days after the decision. Yeah. Why were they going to court, Mark? Yeah. Well, <laughs> why, why, why did the disappointed bitter advice? Well, it does seem that either there was a mistake on the part of the legal advisors or else they simply issued them too late. And of course, there is an important point here, which is that the, the court does have the discretion in judicial review proceedings to extend the time period. It's not a fixed time limit like a, a, a statute of limitations. Yes. Um, but really, the, the, the point that Mr Justice Toomey made here was there has to be certainty in relation to public procurement. And if you want to challenge, you really know all that you need to know, certainly within the 30 days, and, and you have to comply with that very strict time limit. Okay, no, very good, very good. And finally, to a case involving a plaintiff who had an accident on a cycling holiday in Sri Lanka but sued the tour company in Ireland. This is the case of Casey versus Red Spokes Limited, trading as Red Spokes Adventure Tours. Uh, a high court decision of Mr. Justice Simons. I'd say he enjoyed this one. Uh, the tour company claimed that the Irish courts did not have jurisdiction. What did the learned judge find? Well, the, 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 the Red Spokes Limited was a, um, was a UK-based company. Um, but they were promoting these tours in, in Ireland and this particular person booked a holiday in Sri Lanka. And um, the Red Spokes hadn't actually organised the flights. They'd organised the, the, the trip itself within Sri Lanka. But that was considered sufficient to bring it within the, the relevant European directive, which does allow you to sue in your, your own country in relation to tours that are, that, that are organised abroad. And so in this case, although Red Spokes was a UK-based firm, and obviously they're outside the EU, the EU rule applied... Very good. Okay, well, that's that's of great interest, no doubt, to people who are heading off. Mm. Summertime, heading off on holidays, and it all goes west when you're abroad. Mm. You still have a right to take a claim. Very important. Thank you for those, Mark. Really well explained. And we're back shortly with Dr. Ian Marder from Maynooth University. Silence in the fifth court. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Ian Marder, who is the Assistant Professor of Criminology in Maynooth University. And he's here today to tell us about the concept and the practice of restorative justice. Now, Ian, I think you are originally a Canadian, isn't that correct? That's right, yeah, yeah. And But you did most of your studies in the UK and in Leuven, is that right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I studied uh, criminology and criminal justice in the UK at the University of Leeds, and also, I studied my PhD in restorative justice at the University of Leeds, although I did spend some time in Leuven at the Institute of Criminology there uh, during my PhD. Fantastic. Okay. And then how long have you been in Maynooth? I've been in Maynooth just over five years now. All right, so, so well, well established. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, um, very happy to be there. It's a great. Yeah, great place to work. Okay. So tell us, first of all, <clears throat> in your own words, what is restorative justice? So restorative justice can be seen in a couple of ways. One of which that some of your listeners may be aware of is restorative justice as a process involving communication or dialogue between someone who has been affected by crime and someone who's committed a crime. 
So that's sort of a notion of victim offender mediation or restorative conferencing, where on a voluntary basis, people can be offered the opportunity to speak to each other. That means that the victim can ask questions. It means that they might have things that they want to say. The person who committed the offense might have a chance to, you know, say their own piece, explain themselves, apologize. And then there's kind of two parts to it. The first is to address the harm by talking about it, reflecting on what happened and why and who is affected. And then the second part is more outcome oriented. It's whether uh, the parties might want to agree some set of outcomes. So looking at it from a sort of traditional legal practitioner's point of view, generally speaking, when somebody is accused of a criminal offence, the complainant, the victim, goes to the guardie, the guards investigate, they then send a file to the DPP, and the DPP then prosecutes on behalf of the people of Ireland. And generally speaking, most of the involvement of the victim or the complainant is as a witness and they have very little uh, involvement in the trial process, certainly from a formal point of view. Um, so then the, the the DPP sort of puts the evidence forward. At the end of the, that process, the defence gets to put forward their case, and then the jury have to decide. And once the ju- if the jury do decide that the person is guilty, then the, the, the judge decides on the sentence. Um, these days, obviously, there's we, we generally have a victim impact statement. Where in the course of that process does restorative justice come in? So, yeah, a couple of things there, one of which is around this question of whether victims usually go to the police. And in fact, you know, the research suggests that most victims don't necessarily go to the police. So already from that, we can infer that, you know, for most people would rather have nothing than anything the criminal justice system currently has to offer. Okay. And, and quite and, apart from the, you know, the research on the secondary victimization affected by uh, those who do report crimes to the police and end up in uh, in relation to the court, you know, either giving uh, testimony at court or perhaps just being a, um, you know, someone in the in the in the box there. Can I can I just take of you back to your first point there? So you, when you say most people don't report crimes, now I imagine that's different depending on the type of offence. I mean, the, the, generally speaking, it's it's understood that the victims of sexual offences are much more slow to go to the guardie than nest, than maybe the victim of a violent offence. Is that, is that a reasonable analysis or does it apply across the board? So I think that applies quite broadly. I mean, most people who have, most times something is stolen, a victim doesn't go to the police. Um, there's a lot of violent offences where people do not report that to the police. Sure. And sexual violence is part of that, but also domestic abuse and indeed violence in the context of the nighttime economy. Um, violence within the family, as I say. So, you know, really, there's a lot of non-reporting of offences to the police. Right. Can I just broaden things a little bit, um, Ian, to talk about criminology in in general, okay? Because you are a criminologist, though I know your speciality is restorative justice, Mm -hmm. and I I will come back to that. But criminology is taking hold in Irish universities at the moment. Most legal departments now will have a criminology section. When I was studying law, it was only just starting at that stage, um, obviously, criminology has been around forever, but I'm just saying it's it's taking a hold at the moment. Will you just just tell what is criminology about in the context of, of law or generally? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, criminology is an applied social science. So that means that in some universities, like in Cork, it's with uh, sociology and social policy, I believe. In Maynooth, it's with law. 
but it can also be with psychology and so on. And I mean, we all have multidisciplinary backgrounds. So, I mean, I work with criminologists. I'm, I'm more of a sociologist by training, really. So my colleagues would be lawyers by training, psychologists, anthropologists, uh, historians, and so on. And so criminology is really applying all of the other social sciences and humanities to the issue of crime. So it would be the same as, you know, if we had uh, a field of housing studies, it would be the economics of housing, the philosophy, the law, the sociology, and so on. And that's really what we have with uh, with criminology. But is it an attempt to try and help society to deal with crime and ultimately reduce crime mm. and the causes mm. of crime and the way we deal with crime in terms of punishments, courts, sentencing, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, and I suppose like all academic disciplines, you know, we would have people who you know, engage in more kind of theoretical approaches. They're trying to understand and conceptualize crime and our responses to crime in different ways and, you know, move the field forward in that sense. And then some of us would do more kind of applied work. And I suppose the work that I do is largely applied around, you know, what are the consequences of different approaches to responding to crime? Uh, you know, like I was saying before, like what, how do victims um, engage with the criminal justice process? Are their needs met through criminal justice or what are the alternatives to the existing criminal justice process to meet victims' needs and, and make society safer? So, yeah, I'd say there's, you know, th there's some overlap between those people, but a lot of what we do, certainly in Maynooth, is quite applied. OK, let's go back to your, your thing on restorative justice. Mm. And you wrote a fascinating article in the journal. That's where I came across you. And, and you, you started with a couple of case studies, like our, our ideas, our concepts. Can I read out some of them? And sure, just Let's have sure. a little chat about this. Okay, so you say, two women, one of whom attacked the other unprovoked, share a hug after a heartfelt apology, a commitment that it won't happen again, and the revelation that they both spent time in care. That's the first one, okay? Number two, a group of men agreed to call time on a long-standing feud after causing each other serious injuries, they agree to several conditions and receive suspended sentences, which they do not breach. Number three, and I'll stop after this. Agartha learns to embrace traveller culture by volunteering with a youth group after a traveller family tells him about the harm he caused by participating in racist conversations about them. Now, what you're trying to su su suggest, I think there is a sort of an alternative way of making people in society get on better. But is that all a little, you know, tell me about it. Why did you put those uh, examples at the start of your article? So, so those examples emerged from a piece of research we did where we mapped the use of restorative justice in Ireland. So we worked with some of the NGOs that deliver restorative justice, of which there are four primarily. We also worked with the guards who deliver restorative justice um, for young people who are diverted from crime. And we worked with the probation service. So in the first case, um, that was facilitated by a Garda, where the uh, person who committed the offense in that case was 17 when they committed the offense. They were 18 by the time the restorative meeting took place. But so they that's were diverted. an actual example. Those that's are, real life. Oh, yeah, those are real. Yeah, written okay. by the people who facilitated those encounters. So those are all cases that happened in Ireland in the last few years. In the second case, and maybe this speaks to your uh, question around where does it land in mm. the criminal justice process. So as I say, in that first case with the two people who had a, well, one attacked the other, it was a youth diversion. So when the guards decide to give a young person a caution, they can also decide whether to offer restorative justice to the victim and the perpetrator in that case. The NGOs and the probation service usually deliver restorative justice 
in between conviction sentencing. So someone is convicted or, or you know, either found guilty or pleads guilty, and then the judge can adjourn the case and refer it to restorative justice. And in the second case you talked about there... that be at the request of the offender or the request of the victim or of the judge's own it would, volition? Yeah, it would be that the judge is uh, of the view that the case might be suitable. So this is a voluntary process. And, and so obviously the, depends on the judge properly understanding it the process. Well, it does, it yeah. does. It's very discretionary like everything mm. in Ireland. And that's mm. part of the reason why there's very few cases actually because, you know, there's very few incentives really or or... You know, there's certainly no requirement to refer cases, even though, you know, what happens when a case is referred is that the people who would be the ones facilitating are supposed to contact the prospective participants and offer it to them. So just because a case is referred does not mean that restorative justice is going to take place. It's entirely voluntary. And so, you know, what what we would like to see um, in some of the projects I'm involved in where we're supporting the development of restorative justice is that all victims and offenders have the opportunity to decide whether restorative justice is right for them. And that, you know, the, the referral is made so that the service can offer that to people, can explore the suitability. And so in that case, that second case, which is a really good one, because the amount of harm that took place was really quite significant in terms of the violent interactions between the parties. But between conviction and sentencing, they were offered the chance effectively to mediate the conflict and to come to an agreement around that there would be no more violence and that there would be, you know, various other things as part of the agreement. And then they get, were given a suspended sentence conditional on those outcomes. And so does it go back, does it go back before the same judge and the judge being satisfied with the agreement then gives the suspended sentence? Well, so the, the, the legal framework in Ireland under the Criminal Justice Victims of Crime Act is that the judge can take pre-sentence restorative justice into account. So there is nothing requiring a judge to take it into account. But of course, where it happens in between conviction and sentencing, the case will always go back to the judge for sentencing. And that could be, you know, restorative justice is successful and taken to, into account or not taken into account. Or for one or another reason, you know, someone doesn't want to do it or it's not successful. And, you know, the judge just sentences as they would normally. Okay, and will you tell us about the third example? The yeah, guard so and the yeah, I'm, well, I'm the curious. third example is really interesting because what happened there was that a uh, traveler family made a complaint about a guard um, in terms of some of the language that the guard used uh, in their presence. In fact, in the presence of the son in a in a WhatsApp group of local residents uh, who were uh, racistly very concerned about this family moving into the area, and so what happened was that a local NGO offered restorative justice between the family and the guard. And so that actually was not, you know, an offense as such. So it was not within the context of the criminal justice process, the formal criminal justice process, but rather upon being offered restorative justice, the family were willing to do that. And the guard was also willing to do that ultimately. And they came to a very interesting resolution because what ended up happening was, among other things, you know, the, the victims of the harm got a chance to explain, you know, the impact that it had on them. And the person who caused the harm, who in that case was a guard, listened to that, you know, seemed to understand it better. And again, this case study was written from the perspective of the person who facilitated the case. And then indeed, the guard ended up doing some volunteering with a local traveler group and, you know, reportedly got quite a lot out of that in terms wow, okay. of their understanding of Garda culture. Okay. It's, it's of traveler a, culture, I should say. It, it sounds like kind of mediation in one way, doesn't it? it it's related to mediation. It is possible to think about it in, uh, you know, as a related process 
In principle, the main difference between mediation and restorative justice is in restorative justice, it is, you know, it is accepted between the parties that a harm has been committed. So mediation could just be coming to an agreement about a dispute, whereas in restorative justice, it's about addressing and repairing harm. But isn't it all... Sorry, Mark, one, please. Um, well, can I ask, you, you said that there are very few examples in Ireland. Are there countries where their restorative justice is practiced more widely? And is there sort of, is there best practice that you, I mean, can you identify countries where this has really worked? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Norway and Finland both have national mediation services, which take criminal cases. So in principle, in both of those countries, any case could be referred by any person at any stage of the process, including self-referrals to restorative justice. And, you know, a similar system exists in Belgium, although just the, the model of practice is slightly different because you have two NGOs, which between them cover the entire geography of the country. Actually, in Northern Ireland, there's a very uh, well-established and mainstream service for under 18s, whereby legally judges are required to refer cases in between conviction sentencing for under 18s in all cases apart from those that carry a mandatory life sentence. So for the vast majority of cases where a young person goes to court, and is found or pleads guilty, the case is referred to explore restorative justice. Now, again, that doesn't mean that it has to happen because it's voluntary for both parties, and that's really, really important. But the what used to be the Northern Irish Youth Conferencing Service, which was at one point a separate uh, agency altogether, now it's kind of within the Youth Justice Agency, has delivered, you know, delivers thousands and thousands of cases every year. And they've, you know, they publish annual figures, which suggest quite high levels of uh, victim and offender satisfaction with those processes. And, well, can I just go, mm. going back to your Scandinavian examples, you talked about self-referral. To self-referral, can, can that come from either the offender or the victim? Self-referral theoretically can come from anyone, right? Yeah. Now, in Ireland, at the post-sentence stage, it is possible for a victim to self-refer to restorative justice by speaking with the probation service in cases where the offender is known to probation. So if they are currently on some sort of community supervision order, probation order, or if the person is in prison and the victim asks probation to explore restorative justice, the probation service theoretically has the capacity to do that. But very, very few people know that this is an option available to them. But are and very so, few people going to take that option? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're a victim, I mean, isn't the, isn't the system, and I mean, it, it is a very noble idea and I mean obviously it is it obviously is in everybody's interest to try and come to some sort of accommodation and move on from a horrible experience but realistically isn't this only possible if you know in in a kind of the unusual scenario where a victim is willing to reach, reach out to their abuser or to the person that has carried out some crime that they're a victim of. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we wait for people to self-refer, there will be very, very few cases. However, if it is offered to people systematically, you'll find that actually a surprisingly high percentage of people are interested in doing this. And some of the research which has looked at those countries where there are higher levels of offering and they've looked at the levels of acceptance of those offers and then kind of matched because obviously you'll have cases where one person wants to do it and the other one doesn't. But if this was offered to everyone, we would expect to see probably in the region of a quarter of cases could go to restorative justice. Those are some of the best estimates from England and Wales. And that would include, you know, cases where, the, it, you know, it's being diverted from court, cases where it's post-sentence as well. Mm. So this could happen, you know, 30 years after the offence or I, almost immediately. I suppose the real question then is, what's the, does it change the recidiv recidivism rate? 
I mean, it, you know, do you find does it people, work? Does mm. it work? Exactly. Yeah. So in terms of does it work, there's two sides of this because as important as the effect on recidivism is the effect on victims of crime. And what we find through the research on restorative justice is that victim satisfaction with the restorative justice process is way, way higher than their satisfaction levels with the court process. And in fact, court processes are often incredibly victimizing for people who are witnesses or victims of crime. The other element in terms of the victim is around their recovery from crime. And usually in restorative justice research, we measure that in terms of uh, reductions in post-traumatic stress symptoms. So anger, fear, those kinds of things. And research has found that this substantially reduces post-traumatic stress symptoms. There's been a couple of studies looking at, in particular, uh, robberies, burglaries, and aggravated robberies. So relatively serious offenses. And then on the reoffending side, the research is generally very positive about the ability of restorative justice to reduce reoffending. And I mean, that depends a little bit on the types of offenses and so on. And also, it's it's difficult just, you know, methodologically, this, the study of this is quite difficult because you have to control for the fact that it's voluntary. So if someone wants to do it, hmm. you then probably they're already less likely to reoffend than someone who doesn't yes. want to do it. But there are studies that have taken that into account and controlled for that have found reductions in reoffending, even with quite serious crime. So if the Minister for Justice is listening to this podcast and she goes... As I'm sure I, they I, are. I, I, I would be surprised we if she didn't. We absolutely hope but, so, Mark. But, I'd be exactly. very surprised if she wasn't. Exactly. So she, she says, I really need to speak to Mr. Marger, Dr. Marger, um, because we need to pursue this further. What recommendations do you make to the Department of Justice to improve the um, restorative justice offering within Ireland? So in the last few years, we've already been trying to work with the Department of Justice on exactly this. And restorative justice and its development is in the program for government right now. It is also in various departmental strategies, including the youth justice strategy, the um, strategy for supporting vulnerable victims and witnesses, and the uh, offender management strategy from a few years ago. And actually, it's also in the Department of Justice's own action plans from the last couple of years. And what we've been working with them to advocate for is implementing the European legal framework on this. There's a very progressive Council of Europe uh, recommendation from 2018, which says that this should be available for all types of crime and at all stages of the criminal justice process. So in the summer of 2021, we worked with the department to organize a consultation a public consultation, which resulted in a number of models of service development being proposed to attendees. And so we're kind of waiting now to hear what the department's position will ultimately be. In the last uh, justice action plan, they proposed that there would be a policy paper and implementation plan. Hopefully something in that area will come out and there will be new resources for new services that's that's the the dream is that okay. you know there's enough capacity in the services so, so, so this can be offered more widely. So you're talking about practical applications, which yeah. is obviously brilliant, Ian, because it's it's wonderful to have the academic research. But if you can put it into practice, isn't that a wonderful thing? And you said something about you know be it crimes that have happened recently, and you mentioned about let's say crimes that may have happened 30 years ago. And a thought struck me: the last time I heard restorative justice being mentioned in the media, or one that I can recall, is in relation to the recent revelations about Blackrock College. If you remember that, it was, you know, certain pupils came out talking about bad experiences with priests and being abused uh, back in the 1980s, 1990s. And that has happened in loads of schools throughout the country. We're not trying to focus on one school. 
But the approach that was taken in relation to that, I think, by uh, the people in control of the school or the people trying to deal with it was they suggested restorative justice. That's what they wanted. How would that apply in those circumstances? So what's happening in relation to the the Spiritans in the Black Rock College uh, case is that the vast majority of the people who are identified as perpetrators have died. And so survivors who came forward um, to an independent restorative justice facilitator, a colleague of mine, Tim Chapman, is running that project. Uh, he's based in the North. He's a former probation officer and lecturer at Ulster University and does a lot of restorative justice facilitation and training. So people who want to participate in that, if they um, have been a survivor of, of abuse in those institutions, they contact him. And there's a whole process for doing that that was well publicized by RTE and so on. And uh, they can uh, be offered a meeting with people from uh, from Black Rock College, from the Spiritans. And, you know, all sorts of things can happen as a result of that meeting or as part of that. But really, it's about facilitating that dialogue if people want it. There's nothing compelling anyone to do it. Uh, there's no pre-agreed or predetermined set of outcomes. People are free to decide that the dialogue sufficiently satisfies their needs, things they want to say, things they want to ask, things they want to hear, and so on. And all likewise, people are, and this applies, you know, in the criminal justice process as well, people are free to seek, you know, additional things beyond that. Okay, so it, it, it can happen in association with other processes. For example, as you say, the criminal justice system where the guards prosecute and somebody goes to court and gets sentenced. But you can also have a parallel restorative justice type scenario. Mm. Similarly, in relation to this scenario with the Spiritans, people can go and try and get answers and maybe explanations and then there can also be maybe, you know, a process whereby people get redressed for what happened mm. to them as well. Is that yeah, what you're saying to me? absolutely. And I mean, in the case of institutional abuse or, you know, historic institutional abuse, it is important that participating in restorative justice does not preclude you being able to access a legal process later. So that is a really important aspect of that. But, um, you know, within the criminal justice process, absolutely, this could be done in ways that could affect criminal justice processes or in ways that by definition won't. So, I mean, for example, with the Garda Youth Diversion Program, the decision to caution is made before restorative justice is offered. So, you know, restorative justice, by definition, nothing is conditional on whether it's successful or not. Whereas, obviously, in the pre-sentence phase, there is still an element of the legal process to be undertaken there, the sentencing. And so plausibly, the restorative justice that takes place could affect the sentencing if the judge wishes to take it into account. But then likewise, you know, thinking about, um, you know, less recent cases within the criminal justice process, like this is something that could be offered to people on release from prison. Not that necessarily the release would be conditional on it, but like if you are being released from an eight, you know, an eight or a 10 or a 12 year sentence because of a violent offense, um, already there are circumstances where if you as a victim sign up to the Irish Prison Service's victim liaison service, you can sign up to be notified if the person is being released. Yes. That seems to me an, an ideal time to offer restorative justice. Again, not because like that needs to happen or there should be no compulsion on anyone and to do is that. There, is the research in, in, in line with that? Is the research that prisoners who have served sentences experience genuine remorse um, and do want to reach out to victims. Yeah, there are cases where people... Is there a body um, of research on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's lots and lots of research on post-sentence restorative justice. Yeah. Okay. Can I, can I go in one... For, sorry, Mark. No, excuse well, I, me. I suppose I, I imagine 
a, a lot of our listeners will be curious uh, because, as, as I'm sure you know, many barristers train as mediators on the civil side of things. If somebody wants to get training in the restorative justice equivalent, I don't even know what the term is. It's not a mediator mm, or, or facilitator. A facilitator. We would say, yeah. How, how would you train as a as a as a facilitator? Yeah. So I mean, there's a number of NGOs and independent providers that uh, offer restorative justice training, restorative conferencing training, or restorative practices training. So the one that I usually tend to work with on various projects called Childhood Development Initiative. They provide restorative practices training, which you know, if you do the full course you um, leave trained to facilitate restorative conferences. But also there's a number of other providers um, that work in that area as well. That, and often these are people who offer mediation training as well as restorative justice training. Okay. Ian, this has been really fascinating. Before we let you go, just another thought that, 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 that occurred to me, and maybe I'm on the wrong track here. I'm thinking of tr- truth and reconciliation uh, scenarios, for example, South Africa you know, and potentially in relation to the North. It hasn't happened yet. Is this a kind of a a sister of restorative justice? Is that what's going on there? Yeah, so we would say that those are transitional justice processes and that transitional justice and restorative justice are both examples of innovative justice mechanisms. So transitional justice and restorative justice do share some values insofar as, you know, for example, like the victim should have a chance to be heard, right? And there should be opportunities to provide and acknowledge remorse and opportunities for reparation, as you say, reconciliation and reintegration and so on. And so there have been a number of restorative justice events related to what's happened in the North. And by way of example, the Glen Cree Center for Peace and Reconciliation, which is in Wicklow, they facilitate meetings between people who directly harmed each other uh, or, you know, also um, people who are involved in committing or as victims of harm, but we're not directly related to each other. So they offer a number of um, options for dialogue for people yes. who are affected by the work in the North. And but also there's a number of NGOs in the North, some of whom are made up of former combatants. So Alternatives Northern Ireland and also Community Restorative Justice Ireland are both NGOs that do a huge amount of work in broadly conceived you know, mediation, reconciliation, and so on. But they're all restorative justice providers as part of that. Okay, and but just when you say that, I mean, just to, to to mention the best book I have read all year, an absolutely fantastic read. I'm going to recommend it to people out there. Killing Thatcher by uh, Rory Carroll. But a lot of there's a, the story in that of the bomber Patrick McGee and how he suddenly developed a relationship and kind of an interaction with the daughter of one of the victims of the Brighton bombing. It's it's actually it's 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 a fascinating story. I know that's been given airtime as well, but this book is amazing, guys. Uh, and we're talking about books. And Ian, I don't know whether I asked you, could you recommend a legal book? I did, I did. Okay, thankfully for once I remembered. Um, Ian, can you give us a legal book that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I have a couple if that's okay. Oh, great. So I have a film, which I understood was within the parameters. Yes, of course, of course. So there's a film called The Meeting, which is uh, a representation of a real Irish case of restorative justice. It came out in 2018 and it shows the case of Alva Griffith. Okay. who met the person who raped her. Um, she didn't know him at the time, and he went to prison for, I think it was 10 or 11 years, came out and participated in restorative justice after he was released. And actually, Alva plays herself uh, in the film. So the film is really interesting because it is very, it's called The Meeting, and it's, it's reportedly very true to what happened because both the, the victim, as I say, but also the restorative justice service that delivered that participated 
in the in the kind of drafting and so on of the script. And so is it's that available close. online? Was, that is available right. online. Yeah. In terms of a couple of books, I have two on restorative justice, if that's okay. Uh, both written by people who had formerly participated in restorative justice. One is called Right from Wrong. That came out just last year, and the author is a guy called Jacob Dunn. Now, Jacob um, ended up going to prison himself after on a night out, ending up in a scrap and accidentally effectively killing someone in a kind of a one-punch kill scenario. Uh, went to prison for a few years, came out, and ended up meeting the parents of the person that he killed. And so he writes about his journey, including the restorative justice. From the survivor's side, there's a, an Irish book. That one's in the UK, Jacob Dunn's book. But there's one from Ireland by a woman called Sinead Daly, who wrote a book called Sins of the Father, My Story of Survival. And what Sinead did was, after having been abused from, by her father while she was a child for many, many years, went into prison. He was caught and convicted. He was a prison officer, actually. And she went in and met him through restorative justice while he was still in prison. And so she writes about, you know, her story, including restorative justice. And if I can just do one that's not about restorative justice, but which Absolutely. is in the arena of, I suppose, broader, you know, social science, I suppose, or, you know, if, if lawyers want to understand, you know, poverty, inequality and social issues, I'd recommend a book by one of my colleagues at Maynooth, Katrina O'Sullivan, who just published her own memoirs. A book is called Poor. And she talks about growing up um, with a family in addiction you know, in serious poverty and ultimately doing a degree with Trinity Access Program. And now she is a lecturer colleague of mine in the psychology department at Maynooth. Wow. That's very, very good. That came out just a couple of months ago. It's absolutely excellent. Okay. I highly wow. recommend that. Three, uh, three or four brilliant uh, recommendations there. Ian, Dr. Ian Marder, Marder from the Department of Law, a criminologist in Maynooth University. Thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Ian Marder from Maynooth University for coming in and talking to us about restorative justice. Uh, Mark, I think you really enjoyed this interview. I, I found it very interesting. I mean, yeah. it, as he said, there's a the, 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 the certainly a suggestion that it reduces the recidivism rate. Yeah. It makes the victims happier in many cases to have seen their the the the, the offender face to face and get an apology and get a yeah, bit yeah. of understanding and, and thumbs up for anything that reduces crime and the impact of crime definitely you know it has to be a good thing yeah. no really really good interview and really enjoyed that okay i would also like to say a big thank you to our producer conalo moroin and to the dublin south podcast studios and sound engineer lee brennan for their wonderful work in recording this show and again, the word is get in touch if you've if we've said anything wrong in the course of the show or if there's anything you'd like to point out to us. Uh, we're only delighted when people get in touch. Uh, so please do. Uh, so for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas. Come to Ennistime in County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers. Have a look at the programme at wildatlanticlaw.com.